There have been all kinds of incredible advances in, in medical technology in general, but in, t- in particular medical imagery. Um, things have changed a lot since the x-ray was first invented at the close of the 19th century. We have much more detailed x-rays and CT scans and MRIs and ultrasounds and 3D ultrasounds and PET scans. All of these ways in which... Uh, doctors now have the ability to see what's going on inside of us without having to slice us open, which personally is something I'm very thankful for. Um, and the quality and the detail of that imagery is advancing all of the time. It just gets, it's amazing now what, just how things have changed in my own lifetime since we started having kids, the ultrasounds and, and I mean, it was just a fuzzy blob that we couldn't make any sense out of. Uh, without the tech explaining what what that is, but no offense, fuzzy blobs down here, but um, but it's different now, and 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 I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if doctors will have some kind of X-ray vision glasses. You can walk in for your annual physical checkup, and they can just kind of look you over real quick and say, "Yeah, there's a there's actually a mass there. We're going to need to check that out." Or there's a there's a blocked artery, or or there's fluid in your lungs, and 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 you know they they got it. I mean, I don't know if there's anything like that coming. I can't imagine what that would do to our bodies, but. Um, but even if doctors could get to gain the ability to see inside of us what's going on inside of us physically, they're never going to able, be able to really see what's going inside of us in the sense of our hearts, our souls, and innermost part of our being. In a sense, even the inside of the human body is still the outside of a person. That no medical breakthrough is ever going to allow us to see in, into the soul of a man, to, to gain access to what's truly inside a person. They will never be able to have the ability to fully see uh, the thoughts and the intentions of a person's heart, thoughts, desires, motives, fears, those kinds of things. I'd read a cartoon recently along these lines, and it went, it went something like this. I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen behind me, but... Uh, he said, this little bubble, I used to think it would be really cool to read people's minds. That was before I got on Facebook. <laughs> I need coffee. I hate Mondays. What am I going to wear today? I mean, this is this is the kind of drivel that we see out there. But anyway, we're banging on Facebook twice here. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is not a that message. But as limited as we are in our ability to know What's inside of people that that often doesn't stop us from trying. There are some in particular who have who believe they have the gift of really discerning the thoughts and intentions and motives of other people. That's a dangerous thing. People that think they have that gift tend to have more cats than friends because that is a that's a oh man, you guys, that was a joke. I wasn't really serious. Uh but what we what we know from scripture is there's really only one person who knows what's going on inside of us and and that is the lord first samuel 16:7 the lord sees not as man sees um, man looks on the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart god knows what's inside of us we're we're just looking at these last three verses of of the second chapter of john this morning 
And what John wants us to, to do here is he wants us to see Jesus. And seeing him, we will believe in him. And believing will have life in his name. And so everything in the gospel of John is pointing us to Christ, who he is, what he came to do. And these last three verses of John 2 are, are, are showing us something about Jesus. And it's this, is that he knows what's inside of us. He, he sees us clearly. The end of verse 24, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man, that, that Jesus has spiritual x-ray vision. And it's not fuzzy and grainy and kind of hard to make out. No, he sees those that inner part of our being with perfect clarity. And so that's, that's, the, that's the big idea here. Now, the little... Comments in the introduction that are in your outline. Just disregard that. I'm going a different way with my introduction here. But but the big idea of this little short text is that. Is that Jesus knows what's in our hearts. What's inside of us. Now, John makes that statement about Jesus' ability to know what's inside of us. After making a comment about Jesus' activity. So in verse 23 and verse 24. Jesus does something. Actually, he does not do something. Was maybe... Really the way to state, he does not entrust himself to certain people. Why? That's what he goes on to explain. Because he knows what's inside of them. And so while I don't want to lose sight of the big idea of these three verses, and we're going to land on that in the end, uh, we need to look just briefly at what, not that briefly, <laughs> but we're going to look for a little while at what the situation is that, that prompts John to say this about Jesus. And this verses 23 and 24 there, they can sometimes kind of, what is, what is being said here? It can trip us up a little bit. What are these verses saying? And so we're going to get just a little bit technical this morning. That's my Thanksgiving gift to you. Uh, and, and we're going to just break these verses down for, for a little bit before coming back to that main idea of the paragraph. So verse 23 again, look at it with me. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. All right, so let's remember the context of this passage. We were there last week, and Jesus came into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And, and so um, Jesus came into the temple, cleaned house, and ran all the money changers and the sellers of animals out of the temple and caused this big scene. But he, he doesn't just make a scene and then get out of Dodge, like some of your Thanksgiving Thanksgiving guests may do this week. No, he stays in Jerusalem and makes many more scenes, like some of your Thanksgiving guests may do this week. Um, and so so the Passover feast, it lasted for two weeks. And so this two-week period during this time, Jesus is ministering there in Jerusalem and performing miracles. You can do a lot of miracles over two weeks when you're the Lord. And so he's performing many signs, many miracles. And as a result of Jesus' miracle working of these signs, the text says that many believed in his name. And so we're going to ask two questions this morning. I think we'll kind of get our arms around the, the, the situation here in verses 23 and 24. And the first question is this, is were those who believed believers? Did these people really believe in Christ? Were they born again believers in Jesus? Or was their faith something else? Was it superficial or kind of subpar or insufficient for salvation? It was some other kind of faith. And, and, and honestly, I think if the paragraph ended at verse 23, we wouldn't even be asking that question. Uh, there's no problem there. And I say problem in air quotes because there's never a problem with the Bible. 
uh, or there's no difficult uh, text. It's not the problem isn't with Scripture. Uh, the difficulty, any problem is with us. And so so we come to passages like this, and there's other places, and, and, and they can be kind of problematic to us. And again, that's not the Bible. It's that any number of things, we, we bring our theological biases and, and, and we impose those on the text sometimes, our prejudices, our theological prejudices. Sometimes we have, um, uh, we have, we, we, we want to see the Bible through our cultural experience and so we, we interpret it uh, through the lens of how things are today or we interpret the Bible through our personal experiences, through our testimonies. Well, this is how it, this is how it seemed to be with me, so that must be what the Bible uh, says and means, and so we have all kinds of of ways. Some of it, sometimes we just our, our biblical literacy isn't that great, and so we don't we we know bits and pieces of the Bible, but we haven't informed kind of the whole of what Scripture teaches, and uh, we don't understand the historical context, or or we're just creatures. God's ways are higher than our ways, and we. We, we don't always see things clearly, but again, the problem isn't with the Bible. And I would say these verses in and of themselves aren't really problematic or troublesome. But, but for some of the reasons above, it, they can seem difficult to, to some because, but I think if, as we see the plain meaning in the context, I think we'll see what John is saying. And so, a couple possibilities how to answer that first question. The first way to answer it, some, some do this, is that the belief of the many was not true saving faith. It was something less or something else. It was kind of this fake faith, imposter faith, or as some, some call it spurious faith. And these aren't people who truly believed in Jesus for salvation. They're simply people who were impressed by the miracles of Jesus and made some kind of superficial profession of faith in Jesus, but they're not really born again. And the basis for that assertion is not in verse 23, but 24. It's that but of verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. There's an interesting little word play um, that it's not in the ESV, it's not brought out, but it's there in the Greek. It's the, the, the word for believe and entrust. It's the same word in the Greek. And so they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Or some would say they, Jesus didn't believe in their belief. He didn't have faith in their faith. I've heard it said that way. Because their faith was just based on these spectacular signs that Jesus was doing. And therefore it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't sincere. It wasn't saving. So Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. They're, they're kind of like bandwagon uh, believers, like many of us were last year when the Hawks made the playoffs, and and so we all got excited, but then you know we moved on, and so um, so that's kind of how that's one possibility of what's going on here. There's a second possibility. It's that John assumes the belief of the many to be true, saving faith in response to the signs that Jesus performed. And so John doesn't say that many pretended to believe or that many thought they believed. He could have said something like that if that's what he intended, but he simply says, many believed in his name. And that would be then describing true, genuine faith in Christ. Now, I I think that second interpretation is the one that makes the most sense in this context. Now, um, and, and I'll show why in just a moment. That said, I agree theologically and experientially that there is some truth in that first in that first interpretation, there are clearly those in Scripture and in our own experience who profess some kind of commitment to Jesus, some kind of affinity for Jesus, but they're not truly born again. You have Judas, as 
case in point, one of the twelve. You have Matt, Jesus saying, I think very clearly in Matthew 7, not everyone says, who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there are those who, who may call themselves Christians and, 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 and they may be willing to fight for Jesus in some extreme examples like the, the Serbs in, in the conflict in the Balkans. And so here they were in the name of Jesus, just, just slaying people in the Father, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I would say they don't truly believe in Jesus. So, so there is, I understand why people might assert this, but the problem in that case and in the, in these other cases, it's, it's not a, it's not that their faith is weak, but it's misplaced. Um, it's not the sincerity of faith that's the problem. It's that they have the wrong object of faith. We sing the song often, thy works not mine, O Christ, can save the wounded, the guilty soul. Well, this would be, they would say, my works not thine, O Christ. They're putting their confidence in something other than Jesus alone. I think that's the problem. I mean, my own testimony growing up in, in church. Uh, I, I grew up in church, but I was clueless as to what the gospel was or who Jesus even was. I really, I honestly didn't even understand it, and and I couldn't explain it, and and yet many times growing up, I raised my hand to become a Christian when there were opportunities to do so, but again, without understanding who Jesus was, what he came to do, and again, the problem wasn't with the gospel presentation. I don't doubt at all that it was accurate, and and I don't think the problem was with the form of the invitation, and or, or the problem was with the sincerity of my faith. That wasn't it. The problem was that I didn't understand or really believe in the only true object of faith. Jesus Christ. It wasn't until high school reading through the book of Romans. And students are about to begin that process in our own church. And I'm excited for that. It wasn't until then that the Lord opened my eyes to understand the gospel. And I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so so I'm not suggesting that that... This interpretation of John 2, 23 to 25 means that everybody who's ever called themselves a Christian is a Christian. And, and so that's not it. What I am saying is that this text is showing that simple faith in Jesus is, is enough to save. And that's what we want to see. So reasons I think John is talking about true believers. All right, now we're, why, why I take that second interpretation. The first reason is this, is just the simple plain meaning of the words. They believed in his name. The words John uses in verse 23 are the same words he uses all over the place in his gospel account and in his epistles to describe true, genuine faith. In John 1 verse 12, But to all who did receive him, received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's pretty clear. If you believe in Jesus, you become a child of God. Not if, if you believe in Jesus, you may or may not be a child of God. It's, it seems pretty clear. And he goes on in verse 13 of John chapter 1 to describe those who believed in his name, that they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in other words, anyone who believes in his name is by definition spiritually reborn. And so John here, he, what we'll see as we work through the Gospel of John, and you could do a little word study of believe and notice all of these occasions, it seems that John is kind of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, has coined this Greek expression, believed in his name, and he's going to use it over and over again to describe, to describe saving faith. If he wanted to describe some other kind of faith, some 
inferior, pretend, non-saving faith. He could have and would have used some other expression because this seems to be his expression to describe this, this, those who are truly saved. And so, but he chooses to use this over and over again. So I would say these are believers. They're brand new believers. They're, they're, they may be days old believers, at most probably two weeks old during the Passover. These are those that have truly believed in the name of Jesus. The second reason I say this is the theology of John. You put this in the wider context of, of what, uh, this kind of that, that, uh, um, biblical theology and understanding the writer John and what he says elsewhere, saying these people are not born again seems to go against what John again believes and says elsewhere. Later when John writes his uh, first letter, First John uh, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So same author, Same language, maybe some of the same people. There may be people that John's writing his letter to that actually believed in Jesus at the Passover there in Jerusalem. And they trusted Christ years earlier. So they've, they'd believed in the name of Christ, maybe again at that Passover, and they've not only had eternal life, but they could be certain that they had it. In John 3.18, another passage, if if you're still in John 2 there, just flip over a page. And, and we, we see what John talks about, the reason that, that we're condemned. He's as clear on the reason that we're justified as he is the reason that we're condemned. And he says in John 3.18, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what's the problem? Why the condemnation? Not believing in his name. These people in Jerusalem at the Passover, they didn't have that problem, according to John. They had believed in the name of Jesus. And the final just reason I, I think this is the way to answer this question is that it's the, very, it's the purpose of signs in John. The purpose of signs in John. What's the relationship between faith, belief, and these miracles and signs in John's gospel? When people say... They, they're not really believers because their faith is based on the miracles they saw. I think, I think to say that is to forget the very purpose of John's gospel. That, that believing on the basis of signs, miracles, is the very reason he wrote his gospel account. He's giving us a description of these miracles for the purpose of evoking faith in his hearers and his readers, bringing people to faith in Christ. You're, We've read this so many times in our, since we began our study in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. The purpose of this whole gospel account. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so... What we've seen already and what we're going to continue to see is that faith is connected often to these signs and miracles. And that's by design. We saw it at the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2.11. This, the first of Jesus' signs. He did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. So the miracle provoked faith. John 6.26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is after he fed the huge crowd there at the Sea of Galilee. 
And so the implication is seeking me because you saw signs is good. It's fine. It's it's expected. You should be doing that, but you're not. Instead, you're only seeking me because you 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 stuffed your faces for free. And and so the problem wasn't the signs. The problem is their motivation. Twelve thirty seven. John 12, 37, though he had done, Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So they should have believed in him because he had done all of these signs, but they didn't. The problem isn't signs. The problem is unbelief in the human heart. So according to John, Jesus' miracles are intended to provoke genuine faith in Christ, and they frequently do. And I don't, so I don't think we're justified. I, I think we need to be careful that we don't, veer off in this text. I'm not trying to interpret every other passage that would have to do with this theological issue. I'm taking in this text. Don't, don't, I think we need to not, to be careful not to say that, that with some knee-jerk reaction that the faith of these people was bogus. I think the implication is John's recording this is they saw the signs and they truly believed in Jesus. Saving faith. And that brings us then to the second question. So if that's, that's what we're that's what we see if that's what's plain then then what's the second problem that isn't really a problem and the question is this is in what way then did Jesus not entrust himself to them to those who to the many who believed verse 24 but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people again the key word here is that entrust Trust, and as I said earlier, it's the same word translated believed in verse 23. To believe, to trust, to to put your confidence in, to to rely upon, to throw the full weight of your confidence on another. And and these new believers, they had relied upon Jesus for salvation. They believed in his name. They had put their confidence in Christ alone. But Jesus wasn't ready to rely upon them. He wasn't ready to put the full weight of his confidence on them because he saw something inside of them. He deemed them unreliable, untrustworthy. So Jesus saw something in these brand new believers that made him deem them untrustworthy. This isn't about refusing to justify them. It isn't about refusing to take them as children of God. It isn't about refusing eternal life for them. I don't think that's the point. This is about Jesus' unwillingness to trust, to entrust himself to these baby believers, to trust them with the full weight of his self-disclosure. Like he entrusted himself to others, like he entrusted himself to the twelve and other disciples. They weren't reliable enough yet for Jesus to put his confidence in them. And so what did these new believers, what was it that they not trusting themselves? I would say it's this untrustworthy believers. What do they miss out on? They miss out on intimacy with and ministry for Jesus. I think that's the point of this passage. And so we need to understand this, this in its context that remember, Jesus has made this clear. His hour hasn't come yet. He told his mom that at, at Cana, my hour hasn't come. The cross is in his, in his view. It's, a, it's in his gaze constantly. Uh, already and so everything he's doing is based on the father's timetable and so he's very careful he's gathering disciples around him now but he's very careful and who he allows to get really close to him and whom he discloses why he came and his mission and his person and in some greater way 
And, 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 and this is, this is what we see. Jesus keeps a small circle by design. Because in trust, it implies intimacy and closeness and shared life and, 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 and Jesus knows. He knows what's in people. He knows what's in these new believers and he's looking for certain things and they're not there. And so some of us, we, we get a little bothered by this. Uh, that Jesus didn't abide by the fairness doctrine here. That there are those he seemed to entrust himself to and others he didn't. That, but, but, but he has the right. <laughs> he has the right to entrust himself to, to whoever he wants. And the, he can entrust himself in this way to some and not to others. He's Lord. You don't have to ask our permission. He's good. He's gracious. He's Lord. And, and, and he doesn't have to treat all Christians the same way. That's not how he's revealed himself in Scripture, in the Gospels in particular. And so Jesus perceived by this supernatural knowledge that the, the, of, of these new believers that they, they weren't ready for this intimate, self-disclosing relationship with themselves. So he, he says they're untrustworthy. He did not entrust himself to them. I think that's the point. And so a new disciple may and often does become trustworthy over time. Uh, I think that probably some of these genuine believers who I think were genuine believers here after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like the other disciples, and even in greater ways, they, they went crazy. And it all made sense. And, 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 and so things changed for them. Um, even today, I mean, there's Christians, I think, who genuinely trust Christ at an early age. I mean, that really do understand the gospel, really do understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, not like I was as a kid, but who really trust Christ in an early age. But then it's in young adulthood, oftentimes, that, 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 that their faith becomes really critically important to them. And discipleship, following Jesus, isn't just, isn't just a hobby anymore, it's life. And, and, and there's a seriousness to their walk with Christ, and I'd say that's their trustworthiness. So there's, there's differences, and we find our, Different places, but we, we see examples of, of unreliable believers in John's gospel. There are people whose faith is real. I mean, that's how it's recorded for us anyway, and we don't have reason to doubt it. But yet they don't have the spirit, spiritual wherewithal yet to, to, to be considered trustworthy by Jesus. So you have like Joseph of Arimathea. He was the man who went to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus so he could go bury it. And he was, the text says, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Interesting. So he, he knew, he knew what he stood to suffer if he was outed as a follower of Jesus Christ. So, and so he kept his faith secret. He was unreliable. In John chapter 12, Verse 42 and 43, there's, there's another group of untrustworthy believers. There, there were many religious authorities, John says, who, the text says, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. And so, they believed, and again, we don't have reason to doubt the sincerity of their faith, but they believed, but didn't confess Christ. John makes that statement right after making another statement about a different group of people. In verse 37 of John 12, he says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So one group believed in him, one group did not. But interestingly, it's those who believed in Jesus that 
that, that refuse to confess him at this time. They're, they're untrustworthy. Jeez, they, there's something in them that, that, that was lacking. And so maybe you're thinking, just, I hope this is not how you're thinking, but in case anybody is, I want to just kind of cut it off. You're thinking, okay, so I, I can, I can be a true believer, but just be okay with not being trustworthy. Kind of live in the shadows. It's okay to be afraid and not confess Christ publicly. I'd say that is not the way to think. What, what, what did these believers stand to lose by Jesus not entrusting himself to them? What do you and I stand to lose if we are deemed unreliable by the Lord? I just, I mean, there's several things, but I'll just give you a couple. We lose our integrity. We lose our integrity. It's like the believing authorities in John 12 there. Um, we may flinch when we're asked if we openly identify with Jesus Christ. And we should not. We should be ready to boldly proclaim our allegiance to Christ. And, and But I would say true faith, as we see here, it can coexist with with reluctance to confess faith, that faith boldly. But it's not right. Not right. And so I just, in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhoods, wherever, wherever the Lord has placed us, we need to be ready to confess Christ. And I know some, I think some of our hang up here is, it's because we have the privilege of living in the West, in America, and it's, it's easy. But just take this and let's layer it over most believers in the world. You, you go into Nigeria right now, where Boko Haram is just terrorizing villages and cities, and particularly looking for Christians. So you're you're there, you're living there in this village, and there's a knock on the door at night, and you can see torches out your window. You know they're not there for tea. And they're rounding up families to be taken away into slavery or to be killed. And when one of those terrorists looks at you and says, are you a Christian? There is so much at stake with that. If, if you say yes, it means you're if, if you're the husband, it means you're going to be killed, probably. Your wife will probably be made a concubine. Your kids are going to grow up without their parents if they survive. And so, so much at stake. The right thing to do in that moment is to confess Christ. Just be willing. But I, I think it's naive to say that, that, that a true believer might not balk in that moment, the moment of weakness and not confess Christ. They, they, they lose their integrity. They're deemed unreliable, but they're not, I don't think, deemed unbelievers. So just as an example, so I'd say it is important. No, you, you lose your integrity, you lose joy. I mean, a trustworthy believer, what Jesus was saying is that he's, entrusting, he's not entrusting himself to them. He's not letting them into that closeness. And, and, and I, one pastor say that because Jesus is an infinite person, there's always a next level to go with Jesus. We can always know more and more and more of him and love him more and worship him more and trust him more. And so this is Paul's plea that I might know him. I just always want to know Christ more. And so, so if if you're if you're untrustworthy, if you're if you're balking, then you miss out on the joy of knowing this infinite person, Jesus Christ, seeing and savoring Him as God has intended for you to. You may lose condemn, common, condemnation. You may lose commendation, lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and 
So, so I just, that's, that's kind of our step off the main road. I want to get back on the main road now, but that's, I think that's what's going on in verse 23 and 24. Now that gets us to what this text is showing us about Jesus and it's his ability to know what's inside of us because none of that even works out if it's not true, if this isn't true of Christ. This passage isn't here for us to debate the theological implications of, of this. It's here for us to see Christ, to trust Him and to love Him and to worship Him. And, and that's what I'm going to see. So we have questions, but we have this one cert, certitude. It's one certainty in verse 24, into verse 24 again. He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. And this is, this is the big certitude, and I've got, but I have four statements here. Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows. Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8, Jesus, we see so many examples of Jesus' knowledge of, of the hearts of men in, in the Gospels. Matthew 9, 1 to 8, Jesus knew the thoughts. The scribes, they're muttering about Jesus and they're, they're saying that he's blaspheming because he said this paralytic sins are forgiven. So they're muttering under their breath. They're thinking these thoughts. And Jesus, the text says, knew their thoughts. Verse 4, he knew what they were thinking in their evil thoughts. He knew the evil thoughts they were thinking. Mark's statement on this same incident, Mark chapter 2 verse 8, he records it this way. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? He has this ability to see, knows what's inside of people. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 26, we find the account. Jesus knew what was in the Pharisees, what they were thinking about him when he healed a man. Mark chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, Jesus knew the people's hearts. He knew that they were hardened against him. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48, Jesus knew the reasoning of the hearts of the disciples. They're arguing who's the greatest. And Jesus knew it. They're, they're thinking these thoughts and having these discussions. Away from him, but he knows. John five thirty eight to forty two. Jesus knew that some did not have the love of God within them. He knew it. John six sixty four. Jesus knew from the beginning which of his followers would betray him. Who would believe? Who would deny and betray him? So Jesus knows. He knows your heart. He knows you better than your spouse knows you. He knows you better than your best friend knows you. He knows you better than your parents know you. He knows you better than any of us pastors know you. He knows you better than you know you. Jesus, Jesus knows you. There's no hiding from him. That's a great comfort and, and, a, and a reason of concern. Self-examination. Second, an implication out of this one certitude is that knowing what's in your heart is a mark of his deity. Only God, we've seen this, said this already, only God can see in your hearts and know what's going on inside them, exactly what's going on. That's his omniscience. And first we see this Old and New Testament. I could go through a whole bunch of verses and I'm just going to pull out a couple here. But First Kings chapter 8, verses 37 to 40, this is a Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. And, and he says in this, forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you... And you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. So God, God doesn't just repay according to our deeds, but even according to our hearts. He knows our hearts. 
And he, and, he, and he rewards and judges accordingly. He knows the hearts of all mankind. And you go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, a well-known passage. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Lord knows. The scriptures are clear that it's God alone who can peer into your, to your soul. And Jesus can peer into your soul. And Jesus is God, therefore. And that's, again, go back to the purpose of John writing this gospel account. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's deity, he's God. Believing and have life in his name. Jesus can do what only God can do. Jesus is God. Third, Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he died for you in spite of knowing what's in your heart. That's his grace. We read these verses earlier. Thank you, Pat. We didn't coordinate this, but he was he was right on the mark. Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's amazing grace. It's amazing grace. All of these songs we sang were just hit it out of the park this morning for, to, to prepare us for this point. That that That... God knows how wicked our hearts are. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then the answer is, the Lord, I, the Lord, search the heart. He knows us. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. The stuff that we hide, the stuff we think nobody else will ever know and they may not ever know, Jesus knows. And this is what's amazing. He doesn't instantly condemn us. But he loves us, Romans 5 says. And he sent his own, God sent his own son to die for us, knowing that about us. He, he still sent his son to die in our place, to take the wrath that we deserve for that wickedness and sin. And then finally, Jesus can transform your heart. He can transform your heart. He can change your wicked thoughts attitudes, motives, desires, and make them godly and unselfish and holy and glorifying to God. He can, he can rid the hearts of the filth and the corruption that still lingers even after we have trusted in Christ. There's only one power that can change the human heart. It's the power of the risen Son of God who sent the Holy Spirit to work within us to transform us and to change us. Through his word. And so. He's able. I, I say this. And the, the point of this is not to, for us to all leave just miserable and, and pitied. I want to. I want. I do. It is cause for us to examine our hearts. And to quit pretending that that, that God doesn't know. Or that it, 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 maybe he kind of knows in general that we're sinners. But he surely he doesn't know with the detail that, that I know. No. I, he knows greater detail than you know about your heart. I mean you know more. Awful stuff about what's inside of you than anybody else. If, if, if you all knew what was in my heart, I wouldn't be your pastor probably. Because you, you, if you, we just have stuff. We're the worst sinners we know. 
And yet Jesus knows with even greater clarity what's in our hearts. And, 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 and yet he loves us. And he offers hope and the transforming power to change us from one degree of glory to another. And, 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 and the, if we are in Christ, if we have believed in his name, we're not condemned for the sin that remains. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we have this great physician who's not waiting on technology to be developed to see what's inside of us. Christ sees perfectly. He sees everything in our hearts. And what does he find? What does he find today? He sees inside of you if you don't believe in him. He sees past any veneer that you have of religious religious activity or comparative morality or um, respectability. He sees past all of that. If, if you if you have not believed in Christ, he sees. He knows. He knows your heart. He knows you're still in darkness. He knows you're still. Scripture says, dead in your trespasses and sins. And there's only one way to know life and to have your eyes lightened. It's to believe in Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. I have grew up in the church many years before my eyes were opened, before I was brought from death to life. And some of you, maybe that's... It's just, if you, but if you understand the gospel, if you understand the object of faith, I, I urge you to believe in Jesus Christ today. You're not going to fool him. And it's okay that you fooled us. We will not, we will not think less. We will rejoice. We rejoice with those who, who, who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, He knows. He knows you if you don't believe Him. He knows you and He, He knows those who trust Him too. I think that's what we're seeing here in John 2. And He, He sees in you. Does He find you reliable? Or is your faith in secret for fear of fill in the blank? Um, he knows, so you, you won't fool him. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that, that Jesus, you know. Um, we, we thank you. We, we, there is a lot of people we would not want to know what's inside of us. We, we, we would not trust others, other sinners with that kind of knowledge, but we know, Lord, that you are perfect and holy and loving and gracious and just. And we're thankful, Lord, that we're not waiting, uh, that, 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 that our hope of, of, of having, uh, of, of seeing this relationship with you that for eternity, God, is not based upon the relative goodness of our hearts, but it's based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that, God, you sent your Son perfect, righteous Son into this world to be tempted and to sin just as we are, and yet He did not sin. He perfectly obeyed Your law, and yet He died in our place for our sins so that so He was treated on the cross just as we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated as He deserved to be treated, as righteous. And so we thank You for that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank You. It's that and that alone that gives us a seat at the table for which we say, Jesus, thank you. Once our enemies, now we're seated at the table. We give you thanks, God. May, that, may our hearts overflow with the thankfulness, with thankfulness for our all-knowing Jesus this week, who loves us anyway. In his name we pray. Amen.